Well, back to Galatians. And a wonderful, unique section of the, of the book of Galatians that we come to uh, this morning. And here's what I want to do. I want you to hold your hand there in Galatians chapter 4. And I want to set the text that we're looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13? And I just want to say, no, we're not having a wedding today <laughs> because we think of that chapter with reference to oftentimes, right? But I want us to read this chapter, and you remember that Paul sets the chapter in the context of Corinthians and spiritual gifts, and he's telling them that spiritual gifts that God has given you and serving others, when they are exercised in pride and with self-glory and being self-centered, they amount to nothing if and when they are exercised absent of the love of God. So you follow along as I read this chapter, and then I'll show you how it helps us move toward the section that Paul is taking us to in Galatians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 13. If you're ready and looking at that passage and ready for me to read it, will you say amen? Okay, here we go. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, does not jealous, Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they'll cease. If there be knowledge, it will be done away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abides these three. But the greatest of these, everybody say it, is, is love. And you know that these are expressed attributes or characteristics of the love of God, of God's kind of love, that agape love that is not sensual but sacrificial it's the kind of love that looks out for and focuses upon the well-being and the good of others, even at the expense of one's self, definitely at the expense of oneself. When it comes to husbands, love our wives 
as Christ loved the church when it comes to God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his unique son. Now, I want you to turn back then to Galatians. Thank you for letting me read that text. And we come to Galatians chapter 4, verse 12 and following. Now, the love that I just read is the love that Paul has for the Corinthians and that Paul has for all of the Galatian believers and all of the Galatian churches. Remember, this letter opens with churches, plural, a number of them in Asia and Asia Minor that were started by the Apostle Paul. And this love could again be described as the kind of love that a parent has for a child and how a parent would do anything to help and encourage give up for what you care about and love so much with reference to a child. And there can be times where a parent can be trying to get through to a child. And in the midst of trying to get them to see something or to understand or to be alert to something that is going to be dangerous, a parent can stop and say, now, wait a minute. And you would say to a child, do you believe that I love you? Do you believe that I'm on your team? Maybe you've done this as a parent. Do you believe that I want best for you? Do you believe that I care for you? And then in saying that, then what you're asking is, will you now listen to me? And the reason that I mentioned that this morning is that is precisely the kind of appeal and question that the Apostle Paul is asking the Galatians in chapter 4 through verse 12. Until we get to verse 12, 4, 12 through verse 20, excuse me, until we get to this section, it has all been pastoral, so to speak, and rightly said. He's admonished them. He has challenged them. Remember, he started in chapter 1, and he admonished them concerning a false gospel. He has warned them about false brethren. And he's instructed them in sound doctrine in the reality of justification by faith alone and not by works of the law. And he's drilled that down with them, a very theme of the book. He's even called them foolish to wake them up and alert them to the danger that they are facing. But in chapter 4, verses 12 and following, then he stops and he changes gears here at this point, and he appeals to them, and he does so in the gentleness of Jesus Christ. And he reminds them how much he loves them, and he's asking them now to please then listen to me. Everything that I've said thus far, and what I'm going to say following these verses is in the context that I love you. You see, sometimes when you're direct, it can come on hard or even harsh. There's been times that my wife has said to me, Kevin, you're being harsh. And I have to say to her, no, I'm not being harsh. (laughs) But when when you're saying hard things, it can come off the reality, wait a minute, you don't love me. And the, and the Judaizers are trying to turn the Galatians against Paul. 
So he stops in these verses and he says, I just want you to remember how much that I care for you and how much you you cared for me. So what we have in these particular verses, and we've given it a title this morning, uh, likewise, is a model for a biblical and a personal appeal for Paul asking them to hear him, to listen, to be mindful of the fact of what they mean to them. In fact, more than one commentator has said concerning these verses, quote, here's what one of them says, these verses have to, are, are in, in fact the strongest words of personal affection by Paul used anywhere in all of his letters. That's quite a statement because it's sure not the first time that Paul expresses his love for anyone. But these have been labeled as some of the strongest, even in all of his letters, uh, terms or words of personal affection. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at some characteristics of a personal appeal based upon Paul's love for these particular Galatians this morning. And I want you to note, first of all, that this appeal is based upon a mutual care for one another. Now, the Galatians know how much Paul loves them, and he's going to reiterate that. In fact, look at verse 12. He's just gotten done saying to them in verse 9 through 11, How is it that you turn back against the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you. Now notice the change, verse 12. I beg you, brethren. I beg you, brethren. Paul reminds them of his love for them in coming to them, and he appeals to them to remember the way that they loved him. That's what he's going to do here. I'm pleading. I'm begging you. I'm not commanding you. And again, he calls them brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ. He, he believes the best, 1 Corinthians 13, about them, that they are real, that they have really trusted Christ, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul initiated this care to them, obviously, by the fact that he loved them enough that he took the gospel to them. You with me? He certainly loved them in that. He initiated that care by coming to them, and it wasn't easy. And we know all that he experienced in his, in his missionary journeys. In the midst of all of that opposition, he later made a second return trip to the Galatian churches to build upon build them up and build upon the gospel that he had given to them as they were experiencing tribulation. And in the midst of that, to challenge them to be faithful in following Christ. And when he came to them, he didn't demand anything of them. In fact, look what he says the rest in verse 12. He says, I beg you, brethren, mutual care based upon one another here, become as I, for I also became as you. You you love me in the love that I had for you when I came to you. When he came to them, he came to them with the gospel. He, He didn't make any demands on them. He didn't place any restrictions upon them. They were free from the law and the ceremonies. He was personally in that. He he didn't try to do what the Judaizers are trying to do to them. He didn't seek them out and to gain something back from them. Notice what he says later in chapter 5, 
at the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1. And he mentions this, this, this freedom. Verse 1 of chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He didn't, he didn't bring them into slavery of anything except a commitment to Christ through the gospel. But Paul came to them as a sinner saved by grace, commissioned by Christ to take the good news to all that who would listen. He demanded nothing else. And as I came to you in care and love for you, respond. You, you responded that way in effect, and he's asking for that again from them. If you would, one more time, turn back with me to 1 Corinthians, not chapter 13, but turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, because here we can see how Paul came to the Corinthians and how he came to all of those that he brought the gospel to. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Previous verses, he's talking about, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Verse 16, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do it voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted me. Down in verse 19, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. How'd you do that, Paul? Verse 20, here's how he came to them. To the Jews I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law so, that I, so as not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being myself, without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Again, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became, everybody say it, to the weak I became what? That was pretty weak. (laughs) To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I might may by all means save some. Go anywhere, do anything, give up anything. Short of sinning to see people come to Christ. Demanding nothing of them, but offering something to them. Christ and and him crucified, as he says concerning the Corinthians. Back to the book of Galatians. That's how he came to them. That's how he came to them. So notice then again in verse 12. I beg of you, brethren, you know how much I love you. Come as I, as I also, as you, and our care for one another. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. So Paul brought the hope of the gospel to them. And he's saying, you did me no wrong. You received me with open arms. Why why would that at all, why would that change? And then we're told something else here, and that is the context of of his coming to them was a bodily illness. Now, what was that? Well, he doesn't tell us. There's a lot of speculation as to what that was. We look a little farther in the text in verse 15. I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but in verse 15, at the end of it, he talks about the fact that they had initially loved him so much they would have plucked their eyes out and given them to him. 
And oftentimes we perceive that the possibility of this thing with Paul was that he had some kind of uh, infection or illness relating to his, to his eyes. That idea or that position is strengthened with in chapter 6. Look at the end of the book of Galatians. You remember this? In verse 11, he writes to them, he closes this, he's, he is writing this himself, and he sees with what, in verse 11, with what large letters I am writing to you. So was that about the fact that as he was serving, he contracted something that related to his eyes, and now he couldn't see? Well, you can imagine traveling and having that hindrance. Is that the thorn in the flesh that he talks about? Or was it some other kind of bodily illness and probably the other most major way that it is uh, considered, though we don't, we're not told specifically, but another way it was considered in the area of Pamphylia that he had been prior, it's in a lower region of Asia. And it's hotter and there's some kind of a swampy area that is uh, known for that part of the world. And, and a common uh, illness that was true of this period was malaria. And many consider the possibility that it was uh, Paul contracted malaria in that part of his missionary journey, and then he moves up to higher regions of area of Galatia to get up into a higher altitude to recover from this malaria. And that brought him to the Galatians, and they received him. But we don't know what it is for sure, but the text says... Verse 13, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. He, he, not only everything else that he experienced, but now he has some kind of physical affliction. And I am humbled by that because nothing stopped Paul. That brought him to these people. And in verse 14, he says, uh, and that which was a trial to you, notice, not a trial to him. If I were to be writing this, I'd say it was a trial to me. But he says it was a trial to you. In my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God and as Christ Jesus himself. Paul is saying, do you remember how much you cared for me? And he's making this appeal to them on the basis of that mutual care that they had for one another. He came to them with this illness and they didn't send him away. Those two words that are used in verse 14, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise, is the American standard. It's the idea of just to turn away from, just to reject somebody. But the second word is even stronger, the word loathe there that the New American Standard translates this particular word. This word is is much stronger. It even has the idea to spit. It's the idea to be repulsed by something. I think that was more than his eyes, but I don't know for sure at all. But I know this. What about you? I don't like to be around somebody that's really sick. What about you? But they not only were not turned away, what did they do? They received him. How you folks love me. You know why they received him? It wasn't about him. It was the good news that they heard. And they were so grateful that he would tell them how they could be forgiven of their sins and have new life. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they look all, that had them look completely past what was going on with him physically. Notice the text. After, concerning my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ himself. Man, what a, what a reception. What a care they had for him. But look at verse 15. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? What happened? And Paul's saying, it didn't happen my end. What happened with you? Why? Why have, you, why have you changed your mind? We know what it is. It was the Judaizers, and they were claiming Paul as even a false apostle. And he's broken over that. He's so burdened over that. Just the opposite. What happened? Messenger of God, they were so grateful. His condition didn't matter. They, they knew he was sent from God. And they loved him for it. They rejoiced in that. Just stop and think for a moment about key people that God used in your life to bring you to Christ. Key person, key people. Maybe a key pastor. People that God used in your life to bring you to faith. Don't you thank God for them? Aren't you? Maybe it was parents that love the Lord and you grew up in a context of seeing Christ lived and hearing the gospel. But they were his children in the faith. Look down at verse 19. These are his children in the faith. And there was that initial care for him. Oh, my. You received me as an angel of God, bringing the message of God to you. So what happened? What happened to that joy and that mutual care that we had for one another? Chapter 5, verse 7. 5, 7. You were running well. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What happened to you? So when he says you would have plucked out your eye, he's, it is either the eyes or he is saying in, in, in a typical uh, metaphor idea here is you, did, you have, would have done absolutely, given absolutely anything for me. Whichever it is, Paul's appeal to them for the Galatians is to listen to him based upon the mutual care that they had for each other. To listen to the things that he said to them and warning them. To come back to the truth of the gospel that man is saved by grace through faith alone. Not plus law, not plus works, not plus anything else. And the, the manner that I came to you and the way that you received me is an appeal to you based upon that, that you would hear what I've been trying to get through to you. So how did I go from being a message, a messenger sent by God to an enemy from hell? How did that happen? And it seems by the time Paul made his second visit to, go to the Galatian church, many had come under the influence of the Judaizers. And now, even turning against Paul, one writer says it this way. He says the gospel of legalism had become more attractive to them than the gospel of grace. And the man who had become now, who had become their beloved friend, had now become like an enemy, an enemy to them. And he's warning them concerning the reality of what's going on here. 
And he asks this question in verses 16, and that's the next aspect of a biblical appeal, and that would be this, that Paul is devoted to the truth. You can't have a relationship with somebody that's going to benefit them if you're not committed to the truth. Can you say amen to that? In fact, if you're a Christian, you've got to be committed to the truth, to telling the truth and the truth of God's Word. So look what he says in verse 16. Was this the problem? This, this, this devotion to the truth that Paul had. Is this the problem? So have, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? What was the truth? He warned them concerning the Judaizers. He warned them concerning the gospel and no other gospel and the danger of that. And when you are tempted to believe a lie, someone who comes along and loves you enough to tell you the truth, you may not like it. Or you might even react to it. Homer Kent says this concerning people and telling you the truth. He states many times the truth may be painful, but it can be the most valuable thing a friend can impart. Merely telling people something favorably, favorable because it is what they want to hear may be temporarily pleasant but ultimately disastrous. It does no good to insist that all is well when the house is on fire. And Paul would do anything out of love for them, but he would not fudge on the truth. Remember that Proverbs 27, I believe it is? A friend loves at all times, and blessed are the wounds of a friend, 27.6. And the truth about the Judaizers is they were attempting to lead the Galatians away from the gospel and away from the saving simplicity of justification by faith. And Paul states that. Look at verse 17. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. Paul says, here's what they want to do. You may think they have you in mind but they, and that they say they want to help you, but they want to help themselves. They are courting you. That's the idea, like courting a, a gal. They're courting you not to help you, but to entrap you into a legalistic system that robs you of any true joy in the Lord. Here's a good quote by MacArthur. He says that most cults show keen interest and even affection toward prospective members, promising them great personal fulfillment and happiness. And as with the legalism of the Judaizers, the true nature of their spiritual enslavement is hidden from them. Look at the text again. They eagerly seek you, oh yes, but not commendably but they wish to shut you out. What are they shutting them out from? They're shutting them out from the simplicity of the gospel. And the gospel of justification by faith alone is the only gospel that saves. And may I say to you this morning, those that make claims of you that are in Christ today and assured of that very fact, May I say to you, in love, to you this morning, there are many Christians who are seeking their joy in a form of legalism, reducing the Christian life to a set of lists or rules or do's or don'ts, 
And beloved, if you're a Christian, there are plenty of things you do and plenty of things you don't. Can you say amen to that? But reducing the Christian life to rules and, and to even religious ritualism, remember back in verses 9 and 10, rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than loving Christ. And oftentimes, Christians can have a set of rules, oftentimes as legalism, and legalism in its rawest form is making the Bible say something the Bible doesn't really say. And so as a Christian, you have to do this. You don't have a verse on it, but you have strong conviction. You ought to do that because that's what you think. And all of a sudden, here's, here's the Christian life. It's this, and it's this, and it's this, and this. And you stop and think, where does Christ fit into that? And where does loving God fit into that? Where does pleasing God fit into that? And all of a sudden, the Christian life becomes more about ritualism rather than a relationship with the living God. So let me remind you, your joy is found in the Lord, Philippians. You ever heard of that book? Philippians. Your joy is found in the Lord. Being right with God, serving God. Your joy is found in your salvation. A walk with God, obeying God's word and serving others. They want to shut you out. They want, to, they want to bring you under the law and bring you an obligation to them, Paul is saying. That's not right. But have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth about that, he's saying. Notice verse 18. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. At the same time, he says, but it's good always to be eagerly sought, sought in a commendable manner And he says, and not only when I am present with you, anybody else, and here's the commendable manner, anybody who seeks after you in order for your benefit, your sanctification, your growth, your blessing, as Paul did in coming to them with the gospel and then returning to them to build them up in the faith. Such is the whole point of Paul's loving appeal to them for their good, for God's glory. And that's so well expressed to us in verse 19. So in this model appeal we have for us that Paul bases it on their mutual care for one another, listen to me, and based upon what he had always done and what he's doing right now, telling them the truth and what he has given them in those previous words earlier in chapter 1, 2, and 3 and what he will continue to do. But he gives a third reason in verse 19 for a biblical appeal, and I know you'll agree with with this this morning, and that is that in this appeal he expresses his desire for God's best for them. That's all he wants. Not something from them, but for God's best for them. Notice again, verse 19, my children, technon, my dear little ones, father to children, mother to children, Again, is expressing that love for them in the faith. Notice what else he says. I wish to be present with you. Excuse me, verse 19. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Now there's the constant burden that he had for them in Christ. But when he's talking about in labor again for them, 
He's using the imagery, obviously, when we're talking about labor. I think women understand that terminology better than men, especially with mom. And that's, that's the idea of the word here. He's, he, the imagery of a mother laboring to give birth, and he's saying he labored in bringing the gospel to them and seeing them experience this new joy, this new birth. New birth. And he says, I'm in labor with you all over again. Someone has expressed it this way. Paul is saying, you make me feel like a mother who has to deliver a baby the second time. Oh, man, what does he want for them? How is he in labor for them? Well, that's the main part. Look at verse 19 again. Until Christ is formed in you. What is Paul laboring in a burden for them? He wants to see one thing. He wants to see them grow in the image of Jesus Christ. Paul has a double vision, double burden, <laughs> double burden, maybe double vision in light of his eyes, but his vision is two, twofold for everybody. Number one, that you would know Christ. Number two, that you'd become more like Christ. That's Paul. Turn over with me to Galatians chapter 1. Philippians, uh, Colossians, excuse me, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, where he expresses this so vividly for us. His desire for God's best for them is that they would Christ experience Christ being formed in them. Colossians chapter 1, Colossians. He speaks about the mystery of the gospel being revealed in Christ. Verse 27, one twenty-seven Colossians, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now look at verse 28. Here he expresses his desire for every one of his children in the faith. We proclaim him admonishing, proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Completeness, maturity, growth, more into the image of Jesus Christ Romans 8 was mentioned this morning, but I want us to glance at it one time, one more time, and zero in on those great verses that Zach mentioned this morning, but I want to zero in on it. Romans 8, 28, that we commonly quote to others, right? When they're going through things, and I understand that, it's true, we need to remember to preach this to ourselves. Verse 28 of Romans Follow along, am I getting this right? And we know that God causes some things to work together for good. Did I read it right? Okay, read it with me. We know that God causes all things. And there is one of those places that you can say that's all means all and that's all all means. Everything, everything. We know this is for the believer now. This is for the believer we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. 
for whom, for, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. I don't know what God's doing in your life. I know he's working. He's working. And if you don't know him, he's working. He's even got you here this morning to be able to hear about him. He's working. And I know there are other things that's going on in your life. They're called trials. They're common to the Christian life. Sometimes they're small. Sometimes they're severe. But I can say on the basis of this, of the authority of God's word right here, you can always be sure of this, that in what is going on with you, things that are happening to you, now we'll make bad choices. That's a different bag of chips. Right, bag of chips. We, we, we sin when we suffer when we sin. But in terms of even those things, Connie mentioned that in the conference this week. She heard Johnny Erickson Tata causes all things to work together for good, and part of that good always is to conform you more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So you can ask yourself, with whatever is going on. How's he working? What's he doing? How do I have to work on becoming more like Jesus Christ? Now, Marshall and I are there. We're, we're, we're completely conformed to Christ. But the rest of you, we're praying for you. Amen, Marshall? Right? Hopefully you can say today, I know him, and he's working in my life because I know him and I see him working in my life. And I'm a lot more like Christ than I once was. But got plenty of more growth to experience. And part of that growth to experience is to ask yourself, how is he working? And how, I, how can I get involved with how he's working and choose to become more like his son? It's Paul's heart for them. Nothing more than that. They would know Christ and be conformed more into his image. Let's look at the last part of verse 20 then. Last part of the verse 20. All of this is a loving appeal based on their mutual love for one another. What's changed, he's asked, based upon Paul telling the truth. You're going to go to someone, they're making bad decisions, and you're going to make an appeal to them. You want to follow this model. You want to tell them you love them. You want to com commit yourself to the truth. And you want to have the best in mind for them. Now look at what he says in verse 20. But I wish I could be present with you now to change my tone, because his tone has been hard. For I am uh, perplexed about you. You got me scratching my head. I wonder about you. You have me at my wit's end. That's what Paul is saying. But he's committed to them and loves them as a parent loves a child and making this appeal. So this appeal based upon mutual care for one another, his commitment to the truth, and his desire for God's best for them. Let me give you three takeaways from this example of Paul. Just three brief takeaways from Paul's example here. Number one, may we never forget the Christian's love for people. The Christian's love for anyone is anchored in the cross. Because in the cross, we have the supreme example of love. And it is the love of Christ that motivated the Apostle Paul, and it is the love of Christ that should motivate us, not only to serve him, but to love others. You may have the bumper sticker that says, God loves you and I'm trying, amen? But it is the love of Christ. We see the cross, 
And we see how Christ loved sinners like us. And it is the motivation for us to love others and be able to appeal to them biblically, as Paul does here. Zach quoted Romans 5, 8 this morning. It's worthy of quoting again. But God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To love others is to tell them about what Jesus did on the cross. So the Christian the Christian's love is anchored in the cross. Secondly, the Christian's life is grounded in the truth. There ought to be one amen for that. The Christian's life is grounded in the truth. Living and speaking the truth. And so to love someone is to always tell them the truth. No matter how hard that might be. Christian's love is anchored in the cross. The Christian's life is grounded in the truth. And third, the Christian's goal is to become more like Jesus. That's our goal. Say, no, my goal is holiness. You'll find it in Jesus. Look at him. Say, my goal is godliness. You'll find it in Jesus. Come back and look at him. Come back to the Gospels. It's all found, and it's all based in the person and the life and in the work of Jesus Christ and the cross. May we love others like Paul loves, loves them. May we know how to appeal to others. And when others are struggling the most, they need us the most. To love them in Christ and to tell them the truth. Can you say amen to that? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the example of Paul. Sometimes he's almost hard to believe, a man to be so sick. Most of us, we think if we'd sick, we'd say, get me home. No, Paul says, get me to somebody else. Tell them about Christ. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of that trial in Paul's life, and bringing the gospel to others, they received him as Christ himself. Uh-huh. Thank you for those who, bring, who have brought the truth to us in the gospel. Thank you for those who love each of us enough to come to us with the truth when we, we need to be reminded, when we need to hear it, or even when we need to be rebuked. Thank you for those who love us to that extent. Build us up in this faith this week that Christ may be seen, as Paul talks about, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that it might be seen in our lives, and then for your glory, Father. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.